When our oldest um, boy was born, uh, it was one day after his cousin. When our second child was born, it was the same day as his next cousin. And there has been trouble. I'm just warning you guys. But you get through it. And as Tracy reminded us, he gives us a family to do it with and a father who is as faithful and perfect as we just sang about. What a joy it is to look out and see the family gathered here today. I'm Dan Meyer. I am one of the pastors here at Christ Church. And it is my privilege to reflect with you on uh, the third station of a six-week journey we're on in exploring what it means to have God designing our life. And uh, today I want to reflect on the words that we read from the scripture that Jessica led us in so beautifully and uh, invite you to hear their import for each of us. When we meet Moses in Numbers chapter 20, he is having a very bad day. Okay, his wife Miriam has recently died and been buried. He has been out in a hot, dusty, dry, difficult place for a very long time. It has been years since Moses was that beautiful little baby child that uh, Pharaoh's daughter found floating in a little basket along the edge of the River Nile and took home to be her own. And, And Moses has grown up to be quite an amazing kind of man. Uh, The Bible tells us that um, Moses had good looks to begin with. Even as a baby, he was uh, particularly fine. And that had to have helped him on the road to greater and greater leadership. Sometimes good looks can help with that. Never experienced that myself, but that's because I don't have what Moses has. But he also has had other kinds of advantages. And we read in the Bible that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and in action. He didn't consider himself a good speaker, but he was, by all other people's reckoning, pretty fair in doing that and a man of great action. The Jewish historian, Josephus, tells us another detail that we don't actually get directly from the Bible, but was apparently part of the tradition of that time, that Moses had been trained as a great military leader as well. And that by the time he was just a young adult, Moses was a general who successfully led the Egyptian armies against a a superior force of Ethiopians and won the victory for Egypt. In other words, Moses, by the time we're meeting him today, uh, has it all in a lot of ways. Okay, he is handsome, he is well-educated, he is eloquent, he is brave. And by the time he is just 40 years old, which is a little earlier than we're going to meet him in Numbers 20, by the time he is just 40 years old, uh, he has fortune, fame, uh, a, a heroic military record, a whole incredible life in front of him, it seems. God has used his culture to equip him. God has used the Egyptian culture to design him. And give him an extraordinary capacity. God has called him into the larger story of what God is trying to do to redeem his his people, Israel, uh, to set them on a journey that will give them a place in history and, and to help all human beings flourish through a child that will be born to the family of Israel one day in Bethlehem. He's catching up Moses' story in that larger story, uh, as Andy Crouch reminded us last week, of God's redemptive purposes. The Bible says, however, that before Moses can really fulfill that potential, he's got to do battle with something that's not even on his radar screen. Moses is very conscious of the external foes that he faces in life, the challenges he's got outside. 
But what's not yet on his screen is the biggest battle of all. Moses has got to learn to confront in himself a very major character problem. As I think sometimes others of us need that place of confrontation, I know I've needed it myself. The Bible says that one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were. And you've got to remember, as I shared in the first session, that Moses is, of course, a Hebrew as well as an Egyptian. He's actually a, a, a Jewish child. And, and his own people are under terrible persecution in the land of Egypt at this particular time. And he goes out and he sees where his own people were and he watches them at their hard labor. And the text says he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. There's an Egyptian slave master beating one of the Hebrew slaves. Now, you've got to remember that Moses had the kind of public stature. He's a member of the household of Pharaoh. I mean, everybody knows his face. He's got the kind of public visibility to simply speak to the Egyptian overlord and say, cut that out. And the man would almost certainly have backed off. If that had not been enough, remember who Moses is in terms of military training. The guy is a green beret, right? He's a special, he's a general. He certainly had the muscle and the know-how to, to force this guy to back off if that's what, what was called for. And furthermore, he's got the kind of political connections as a member of Pharaoh's household. He could have gone back, made sure that guy never worked again, could have easily uh, lobbied for legislative changes that would result in, in better treatment towards the workers in Egypt at that time. But Moses doesn't do any of those particular things. Moses' rage at the injustice he was seeing was really understandable. I mean, if you see injustice and you don't have something kicking up in you, there's something wrong with you, right? He, his anger was appropriate. It was the way it got worked out that was so devastating. Exodus chapter 2 and verse 12 says, Looking this way and that way and seeing no one watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. Now, when this was ultimately found out as it was, um, Moses had to flee the country. He's in a place of tremendous influence there in Egypt. He has, to run, he has to cross the border. He runs off into the desert, the wilderness of Midian. And he's going to spend the next 40 years of his life, right? He's 40 when, he, when this happens. He's, it's going to be until he's 80. He's still out there in the wilderness of Midian. And, 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 and just think how many injustices are, not, are now going uncorrected in Egypt over those 40 years. How many more slaves are being beaten and a lot worse? And Moses is now sidelined and out of commission because he couldn't control his temper in that one moment and work more creatively for change. Now, this pattern of anger management shows up a lot in the life of Moses. Um, in Exodus chapter 32, Moses is now out in the wilderness. He's leading the Israelites. God calls him up to a, for a summit meeting on the top of a big mountain. God gives him there on two tablets of stone, what? The Ten Commandments. Yeah. The, the, the most uh, enduring moral precepts in all of human history are hand, put in Moses' hands to take down and give to the people of Israel to guide their way 
to, to form a new kind of nation. Moses comes down from the mountain. He, he, he's so excited to be coming back to his people. He's had an amazing experience. You know, in, in a much lesser sense, he's like parents have gone off on vacation. They've gotten refreshed. They've got a whole new vision for family life, right? They come back and they discover that while they're gone, the kids have thrown a huge keg party. <laughs> and that's what kind of has gone on. Right? There's this idolatrous party going on. They've made a golden calf for themselves. They're worshiping foreign uh, gods. You know, it's just, it's all falling apart while he's, at, uh, he's been up on the mountain. And again, Moses could have stepped in. He was a formidable leader. He could have, could have called a meeting of the people. There were all kinds of options he had to deal assertively with this issue. Listen to what the Bible says Moses does in the face of this circumstance. The Bible says, when Moses approached the camp, saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Now, if you don't get this image, let me put it in more contemporary terms. It's Thanksgiving Day. Picture this, your house. And, and, and dad hears mom saying to the kids, set the table, right? Mom's been doing a huge amount to help to get the holiday ready. And, and, and dad finds the kids in the basement playing video games when they're supposed to be setting the table. And, and, and there are lots of ways dad could deal assertively with this. This is what dad does. He goes upstairs. He sees the freshly made turkey. It's just come out of the oven. This gift for the whole family. He picks it up and he smashes it all over the floor. Stuffing in bits are everywhere. And then he goes over and he grabs the Xbox. He takes it out of the kitchen sink and he, bam, bam, he grinds it, puts it down to the disposal, grinds up the Xbox. And then he takes the pieces of the Xbox and he makes the kids eat it with the cranberry sauce. <laughs> Would you say hey, the dad has an anger management problem? <laughs> yeah. That's what's, that's what's going on here. Right? We read the Bible through these stained glass lenses, you know. These are human beings with real life problems. It's a reminder that we need a savior, you know. So, um, so then we come along to this um, story from Numbers 20 that Jessica read to us, our lesson for today. The Israelites are they're traveling through the desert of Zin. Okay, they have not been able to find a rest stop that serves beverages. And it's getting hot, and the kids in the back seat are complaining. I mean, they're more than complaining. They are whining. And, and, and Moses is just really agonizing about this. And so he asks God for help, and God instructs Moses to gather the people around the staff. Now, the staff was the symbol of authority, of God's authority, that Moses had been given to equip him on his journey. And God instructs him to take the staff, the symbol of God's authority, and, 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 um, and just speak to that rock before their eyes, he says. God says, just, you don't need to do much. My authority is enough. Just speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water, and they will know that I am God, and I am with you. And I am going to carry them and you through this. You're going to be okay. That's the clear instruction God gives. By now, however, Moses is caught up 
in one of those do I have to do everything kind of rages. Have you ever gotten there? Do I have to do everything? And the Bible says, He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? Do I have to do everything here? Right? Who's he, who's he leaving out of the whole equation at this point? God. Yeah, he is just so caught up in himself. And then he doesn't just speak to the stone as God had said. Instead, Moses raises his arm and he struck the rock twice with the staff. This precious symbol of God. Bam! Bam! Right? Wow! Even if you can identify a little bit with Moses here, I can identify with Moses in a lot of these stories. There is no way to perfume the excessiveness of his response, right? There's passive, not enough response. There's aggressive, way over the top response. There's assertive, a godly response. Moses lives way out here. He lives way out here. And these examples that we see throughout his life of excessive, out of control, ultimately unhelpful behavior, God does not like them. God makes it really clear that he doesn't he doesn't see this as, as appropriate for Moses. In fact, he goes so far in this story as to say, Moses, I can't let you go into the promised land. I'm sorry. The people are going to go on. You're, you're, you're going to stay. The bottom line here is Moses, he's got lots of great qualities. Um, but, but his temper ain't one of them. And before God can fully use this man's life, he's going to have to reshape it. Before Moses is going to live into his full potential, things are going to have to alter in him. His tendency towards uncontrolled wrath comes from that very deep place in Moses that, 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 that's probably, for many of us, a deep place in all of us that one author is simply called the big me. The big me. In his um, terrific book, um, The Road to Character, New York Times um, columnist David Brooks um, asserts that on the journey to becoming people of beautiful character and transforming influence, on the journey in our lives of becoming people of beautiful character and transforming influence because of that character, which is God's desire for us, on that journey, the most significant battle we're going to do is with our own inflated selves. That's what Brooks says. The most important battle is not going to be with all the other enemies out there. It's going to be with the enemy to the own pro- our progress of our own soul. Um, all of us are tempted, me for sure, to want a life that is about me, about my, my wants and my wishes, my will and my way, my position and my power, my tastes and my temperament. I want the world to be very responsive on my schedule to this big me. This idea is not um, new. This tendency in any of us that may have this tendency come from a long line of people. This goes back to the beginning of the, of the human story, the Garden of Eden, where, where basically the serpents convinces uh, Adam and Eve, the first sort of human beings, that they, they can have it all their way. They can be as God. You can be like God. 
It can be your will, your way all the time. And, and they buy this. Most of us know in the clearest moments of our life, you know, they can't really be like that. But once this idea takes hold in us, it gets really sneaky. It's an insidious idea that, 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 that we could, if we worked harder, if we simply pushed harder on other people, get it to work for us in a bigger way. And so these passions, um, like anger and lust and gluttony and envy and greed and sloth and these other things that the Bible calls the deadly sins, these are simply the manifestations of that core pride that's chasing the, after uh, the big me, or it's expressing the big me. Now, you've probably run into people where it's obviously going on, right? You've had bosses or parents or, or pastors or you've seen celebrities. You've, even presidential candidates sometimes can be really big me people. I don't know if you know, know any like that. But, <laughs> but they can have all kinds of great gifts, any of these people. Great gifts, awesome capacities. But, but the big meanness of their lives just sort of overcomes them. And, and you think as you look at them, do they even see this about themselves? Do they recognize it's a problem? Why don't they change that? Because if they change that, they could be so much more effective and influential than their being. There, there was a, a thriving moral tradition once in history that called people to pay attention to themselves in a different way. There was a moral tradition, uh, even in the United States, writes Brooks, that encouraged people to do a battle with themselves, uh, that, that called them to, to look for evidences of the inflated self and, and puncture that, let the air out of that. There was a whole moral tradition that was about this. And from childhood on, and I'm quoting Brooks now, people were taught to be more skeptical of their desires, more aware of their own weaknesses, more intent on combating the flaws in their own natures, more purposeful about trying to turn their weaknesses into strengths. In the last 60 years, however, and again, this guy's a New York Times columnist, he's an observer of culture in many different forms. He says, in the last 60 years, we have seen a broad shift from the culture of humility to the culture of what you might call the big me. He coins the phrase. Uh, check that out against your experience. Um, listen to the refrains of the Disney and the Pixar uh, movies these days. Be true to yourself above all else. Trust your intuitions. Or, or pay attention to the sort of stock graduation cliches, graduation commencement ceremony cliches these days, follow your passion, don't accept limits, chart your own course. You have a responsibility to do great things because you are great, right? This would be unthinkable to a prior gener earlier generations who, who valued humility and, and, and the battle with pride in a different way. In, in her phenomenal bestseller, Eat, Pray, Love, how many of us have had that on our shelf? Yeah, it's been all over the news. Eat, pray, love. Elizabeth Gilbert tells us that God, and I quote, manifests himself through my own voice from within my own self. God dwells within you as you yourself, exactly the way you are. That's how you can solve your problems. Just 
recognize your godness. Talk about a big me, right? And this is the best-selling book. This is the selfie culture we're living in, right? This is the, this is the culture that where we get trophies for coming in seventh place. This is the culture where it never occurs to us. It might be sort of inappropriate to share every detail of our grocery store trip on social media. You know, wow. Wow. This is a different world. And and as Brooks rightly observes, you know, this emphasis on self-actualization and self-esteem is not all bad. Okay, it's 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 been a, a pendulum swing, maybe from an overemphasis on on uh, humility to the point of a dangerous passivity. He, and Brooks says, you know, for example, it gave millions of women this movement. It gave millions of women a a language to articulate and to cultivate self-assertion and strength and identity. Some of this was good, but the pendulum swung too far. And we're living way out here now in our culture today. And it eventually deadens us, this, this big me culture, to, it deadens us to that ancient and benevolent voice that is always trying to say, Adam, where are you? Eve, locate yourself properly in the universe. You know, examine yourself. I mean, really. Um, check your motives. Uh, test your assumptions. Look for those places where you where radical change is still needed because until you become more ruthlessly self-aware, more conscious and considerate of the needs of other people, until you cultivate humility, you're never going to find real wisdom and you won't be a, a, reach your potential or be of use to me, says God. Jesus puts it differently. He puts it like this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, must deflate the big me. For whoever wants to save their life, wants to hold on to this kind of life, is going to lose it anyway, because sooner or later it does all go. We let go of it all, all but our relationship with God and our relationship of love with other people. But whoever loses their life for me dies to that kind of life and for the gospel will save it. I will give them a better self, said Jesus. I will grow myself in them. That's his vision. I love... um, the way Harry Emerson Fosdick, a preacher of an earlier generation, uh, puts this in his book uh, on being a real person. He says, the beginning of worthwhile living is the confrontation with ourselves. Would you say that aloud with me? It's up on the screens. The beginning of worthwhile living is the confrontation with ourselves. That is not a comfortable idea, but, it is, but it's a true idea, and um, it's one worth sitting with. I think one of the most impressive things about the story of Moses is that he ultimately does confront himself. The Moses we meet at age um, 40 and then we meet at age 80 uh, is a different guy than we meet at age 120, further down the road, where he's now incredibly humble, amazingly able to be an assertive leader without being a crazy leader, right? He has come to terms with the, the flaws in his character and let God work on those in amazing ways. If you study the life of King David, you see the same pattern, right? Wild excess, big me lust, right? You remember what he did? He killed, an, he killed another man to get his wife, uh, took the wife first, then killed the guy, right? Talk about a big me. 
And, and yet by the end of his life, the scriptures say he's a man after God's own heart, deeply humbled and of use to God's purposes. Same thing with the Apostle Paul. Same thing with so many other people God uses over time. These people confront the big me. They grow in self-awareness and humility, and they become greater and greater instruments of God. So here's what I want to think about with you and let you go. How could that be so for you and for me? What, what could we do? What disciplines, practices could we undertake that might help the big me to shrink and Christ to grow in us? Here are a couple of quick ideas. First, determine what success looks like for you. Uh, maybe go home and write it down, your definition of success. If I'm like this, if, I, if this has happened by the end of my life, I will have been a success. The world's going to tell you that it lies in, in being good-looking, in being famous, in, in having a fortune. Uh, it's going to give you a lot of recipes for what success looks like. Um, figure out what your definition of success really is because the Bible says that success is becoming a person of Christ-like character. A person of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. That's what the Bible says success looks like, knowing God, loving God, and loving others. Um, this is what Jesus says. Choose this goal for yourself. Not a bigger me, but more of me and you. Okay? Let me become bigger in you. That's, that's what will lead you to the most meaningful kind of success. Um, secondly... Take a page out of the recovery movement, out of the 12-step movement. Um, go home and at some point make a fearless moral inventory of your life, of, of the things that you suspect do need changing about your character. Uh, we've given you in the Pathways Bulletin today a wonderful little insert, and on one side of it is, a, is an excerpt from David Brooks' book. It's called The Humility Code. And it describes sort of what it looks like to live a life of humility over and against a life of pride. Uh, and so I would encourage you, read that and, and assess your own life against it. Uh, just measure it and uh, fearlessly do this because there's grace for you. There's more than enough grace for you. But, but assess honestly sort of where you are in relative to that vision of humility. Uh, look at the good, look at the bad, look at the ugly. Um, Paul says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's going to take work to live by humility that rather than pride because it doesn't get modeled. There, there's a man in a white coat and a white hat down in Philadelphia that's modeling some humility for us right now. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, but it's hard to see in the world, so don't conform to that pattern. Thirdly, invite others to speak the truth into your life. Uh, invite other people to speak the truth in life. First of all, invite God to, to speak truth into your life. On the flip side of the humility code, we've given you an, uh, a little outline of something that's called the prayer of examine or examine. Uh, it's an ancient Christian spiritual practice that's aimed at helping you become more attentive to God's voice in your life. Uh, try it. Give it a shot this week. Uh, try it e even once a week for a month. Uh, and see what God may be saying to you and uh, where you become aware of things that he wants to change. Lord, what's the truth you want to speak into my life? What do I need to see? Is there some anger, uh, some lust, some gluttony, some envy, some greed, some sloth, something else?
that you want to alter and transform in me. Or ask a friend. Uh, Ask a family member or a workmate. What's tripping me up? I mean, I know I've got some gifts, but what's, what's tripping me up? Where am I getting in the way of myself? So what, what might I be totally missing about myself and could be so much more effective and fruitful if I could just finally deal with it? Uh, humbly ask that of somebody. Finally, seize your next conflict with other people as an opportunity, not an obstacle to your progress in life. Okay? Um, we all have these conflicts, right, with other people. They're the problem, it appears, so often, other people. Uh, seize the next conflict as an opportunity. I love what the Apostle James says about this. Uh, James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He asks the question, what causes these fights and quarrels amongst us? And then answers, don't they come from our desires that battle within us? Don't they come from the big me at work within us? Uh, I just think back um, to a moment some time ago uh, when I got into a towering fight with Amy. And um, uh, we were uh, um, preparing a a dinner, and uh, I was going to cook um, the salmon. So I I had the salmon on a plate, and I was all all dressed up and ready to go. And and I was heading out towards the barbecue, and Amy said to me, uh, uh, really keep an eye on it. Really keep an eye. And I said, I got it covered. I got it covered. She, she says, no, you sometimes burn the fish. Um, please be careful. And, uh, you know, I just bristled inside, right? Because, like, you do not attack a man's barbecue skills. Uh, and I got it. I got it. So, I, you know, I go out there, and, and I had cleaned the top of the grill really nicely. It was polished and laid the salmon on there and I closed it down and then I got going I had stuff you know we had other stuff that needed doing right so I did these other things and then I came, I come back to the grill and the amount of smoke that was coming out of the grill was a little like up on the top of the mountain where Moses got the Ten Commandments and I dash over and I flip towering inferno is going on out of the grill which wasn't my fault because there was this grease fire underneath the thing. Somebody had forgotten to clean underneath the thing. And, you know, it was totally out of my control, this thing that had happened. So I sort of scrape up what's left of the charcoal fish, and I come in. Amy takes one look at the platter and credit her. There's there's tenseness when she says it, but she's not, you know, she's not being uh, cruel. And she says, you burned the fish, didn't you? And I went ballistic. I mean, I, the, the big me in just came out. And I just was, you know, all defensiveness, all anger, all what about the time you did this? And, Bob, you know, I was just a demon, right? <laughs> and, uh, and she has to stand on her tiptoes when I'm like that because I'm tall and I can, you know, and she, she, you know, she's speaking back to me and it's not pretty. And, you know, I want, I'm, I'm lying on the couch that night. I am not sleeping with that unreasonable woman. I am not going upstairs. <laughs> and then I'm hearing, the vo- I'm hearing the voice of God in the past Bible passages that says, you know, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And I, oh, get up. And I go back upstairs and I, I'm going to take I'm gonna, one last time. I'm just going to try and explain to her why I was not at fault and why she overreacted. 
Before I can get a word out of my mouth, she says to me, um, Dan, what is it about you that finds it so hard to simply admit that you made a mistake? And as the words are coming out of her mouth, I am 100% certain that I am right and she is wrong. (laughs) And at the conclusion of that sentence, that question, I am 100% certain she is right and that I've been in the wrong. And I can suddenly see it. All the places the big me is going in my life, or at least a lot of them, all those places where I have to prove how competent I am, how I buttoned up I have everything, how I have to get the praises from people for stuff, suddenly I see it with, with an unusual, for me, unusual clarity. And I realize how much of my character still needs work. You know, how much of it uh, is still really the writhing behavior of the big me. How about you? What is it about your character that God is lovingly wanting to change, to transform, so you can be uh, an agent of his kingdom in a bigger way and fulfill the potential for which you were made? What is it about you? Could the great designer be using the conflicts that you deal with in your workplace, your home, your church, wherever you go? um, Could he be using those conflicts to try and be drawing your attention to something or chiseling away or pruning away something in you so he could bear more fruit through you. Because, you see, God has got this really simple vision for your life and my life. He just wants us to die to that so that he can come alive in us, so that he can become the all in all, the beauty in our life. As St. Paul said, so that it is no longer I who live, but Christ, who lives in me. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for your loving, chiseling work in our life. When it's painful, Lord, we ask for perseverance and humility and ask that you would complete this good work you've begun in us for your glory, for the blessing of people. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.